Hello, and welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Books Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Let's have our joke now. Hi, everyone. Uh, Chris, alcoholic joke teller. Hi, Chris. All right. Uh, so we're continuing our journey through the A Grapevine book, A Rabbit Walks Into a Bar. Here is the joke. You know it's time to sober up when those fluttering things that keep scaring you are your hands. That's and there's a bonus, bonus joke. Uh, you know it's time to sober up when you realize the last time you were sober, you didn't have kids. Another great joke by Chris. Thank you. All right. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Violet. Hi. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start a two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise or that will make um, uh, any distractions. Okay. So take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? Yes. All right. So if so, let's start the meditation. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, now we're going to pray the fog light prayer. Please join me. And if you don't know it, it's right here on the screen. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light. Amen. There is a solution from the big book of page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've, at this moment, I've asked Justine to read Spiritual Experience. Hi, I'm Justine. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Spiritual experience. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety, because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is a proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. <laughs> Thank you, Justine. Uh, so we read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have a spiritual experience. So it's kind of important to know what one is. Okay, at this point, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane or meeting mode or just turn them off. Um, so this week's speaker, he's doing um, our 12-step series, and he's been doing, doing a great job. Please welcome Peter M. My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I'm also a very exhausted alcoholic. I have no idea what's in the tank tonight, so if I keel over, Jared, just get up here and fill in for me. Uh, June 23rd, 1988 is when a loving God separated me from alcohol. I'm very grateful for this gift of sobriety. Uh, very grateful God has uh, given me uh, uh, the gifts he's given me. Uh, it's 34 years now I've been here, and uh, when I started out, I didn't think I'd make a year. It was kind of a dream. I remember sitting in treatment and the H&I folks would come in and some of those cats had like five or seven years. I was like, how do, how do, you, how do you even do that? You know, one year was a reach. Uh, five and seven years and they even had jobs. This blew my mind. And they showed up, they went to work and worked. It, blew, it just blew me away. Uh, I went to work and stole and then I got fired so I didn't identify with that part. But um, God has kept me here, and I'm very grateful uh, to this group. To me, it's the best group in South Florida um, for the trusted servants who set this place up. I mean, it looks fantastic. Uh, and the, the sponsors uh, have been put in my life, and, and, and the women uh, who uh, crossed my path over the years, the old-timers, really nurtured me back to health when I got out of my seven-treatment center. Uh, so it, I still, as exhausted as I am on certain nights like tonight, I still get excited. I, I, I'm still passionate about this. Uh, uh, it gets me out of bed uh, many mornings, you know, when I'm going to this group or that group. Um, uh, it, it's what a life. And if anyone's new, I mean new counting days, new under a year, new even two years and under. Uh, I know I was two years, and I thought, you know, they were going to set a monument outside my home group for me because I made two years, and it's a great thing. But we're new. And... Um, if we stick around, we'll get to experience the sacredness of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you'll get to see when you look in the mirror and look at other people how lives get reborn and resurrected in here. This whole thing is about having a relationship with a God of our own understanding, this power greater than ourselves. And uh, it wasn't like that for me for a long time. I kept resisting. One of the biggest uh, delusions I, I fell under, believing that life was controllable and moreover, I can control it. And that followed me right into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm wondering why I'm frustrated and, and irritable and it's not going my way. And it's funny, in the 11th step talks about uh, when agitated or doubtful to pause. I usually have to pause when agitated and or doubtful is because I'm trying to get my hands on my life again, which I have no business doing. They're not doing it right. It's not going my way. And so I had to let go, and sometimes I leave claw marks in it, this need to control. What it comes down to for me and my personal experience, and I would love to report to you, I do this perfect all the time, is about am I going to trust God or not? And am I really truly in a place of surrender to everything, to what is? Surrender even my sobriety, my life, my relationships, my career. Surrender everything. Because if I'm not, I'm playing God. And when we get to step three, which is my assignment tonight, it says we had to quit playing God. And so if I'm not even willing to do that, how could I move forward? And the interesting thing, our book talks a lot about willingness and willingness and willingness. Just being in a place to be willing, I already can experience a little bit of freedom. I, I get, create some space between me and the solution. Just in a place of willingness. Okay, I'm willing to do this. I can begin to breathe again. I get a new point of view on stuff. I start to become teachable. Do I want to get past here, wherever I am? 
whether I'm counting days or I'm double digit sobriety, do I want to get past here? And the answer for me has always been yes. And not that I'm greedy, I want more, but I can't stay where I am for a long time. Not spiritually speaking, because the old timers would say we're either going or we're growing. So it might be going really good right now, which is great, and embrace it and be in that light. But I can't repeat today, tomorrow, because tomorrow's circumstances might change. I need to grow because the illness is always getting smarter. The illness is always getting sharper. The illness knows me better than I know me. And it knows where the cracks in my armor are. So I need to continually, as our book says, grow in understanding and effectiveness. Do I want to get past here? You know, how free do I want to be? When I was drinking and I got drunk, I liked to get drunker. And when I was high, I liked to get higher. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, I get God and I get free. I want to get freer. And it's really interesting because there are things in, in the defect uh, department, defect shortcoming department, that I'm not even aware of yet. And one of the prayers I work to God is, show me these things before they get me and kill me. Because I might think I got a pretty good grip and I know what my shortcomings are, my defects. I got a snapshot of them, but that's not all of them. Because they're always, they're always showing up in different ways. They're always growing. So I really need to surrender. It's the only way I found I can access power. Surrender. Am I going to trust God or not? And there's a great story, if you uh, allow me for a moment, um, about surrender and am I going to trust God or not. And the story goes something like this. There was uh, a gentleman who was a, a very religious guy, devout Christian, and went to every service, devout Catholic, went to every service, did everything the church asked him to do, helped others, was that kind of guy. And he started to feel ill. And he went to doctors, and they sent him to more doctors and so on. And uh, he finally sat with his, his own doctor. He says, he's got some bad news, and it's, you don't have much time. You need to make arrangements. And at that point, this guy becomes irate. How could God do this to me? And he walked away from God, if you possibly can, and walked away from his church and was hell-bent on self-will. And he fell asleep uh, one night in a dream uh, he had. And he was walking on this field, <clears throat> and he's carrying this huge cross, this heavy cross. And he's just even more agitated by this. I can't believe I got to do this. I got to carry this cross and to the edge of this cliff. And I don't know what's on the other side of that cliff. And he hears singing, and he looks around, and there's like a whole bunch of other folks carrying the same size cross, but they're singing Christian hymns. And they're smiling, and they're loving it. And he's, this is insane. These people are crazy. And as he's walking, he sees a little barn on the side of the road, and he runs into the barn with this cross, and he finds a little hacksaw, and he starts cutting the cross down to where he feels it's manageable. He's in control again, and he thinks he got over on everyone. So now he's walking, and he's laughing at them, saying, what fools? Well, they come to the edge of the cliff. And it's a huge canyon in front of them, and there's, on the other side is the mountain, which is paradise. And what all these folks did was lay down their cross and walked over the canyon into paradise, and he was stuck in eternal hell in his own stuff for, forever. Why? Because he didn't surrender to what is, and he didn't trust God. 
because I have found in my experiences in being here a while, my own life and listening to, you know, lots of inventory in here, a lot of, you know, the coffee cup uh, 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 talk. It seems like we all got in varying degrees across the carry. Whether it's a family member sick, a family member's using, their job didn't go well, money didn't go, whatever it is, we all got one. My job is to surrender that. Am I going to trust God? There's a reason why this weight's on my back to keep me close to the ground. And I need God's strength to take another step. But if I drop it, I'm on my own again. I don't need to put two crosses on my shoulders because that self will run riot. But can I carry that one cross he's placed on my back joyfully? I would love to report to you I'm joyful all the time about that. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes I'm going, God, you're not paying attention. This is getting heavy. And I don't know what's around the corner, and I want to know. I don't know where I'm going, and I want to know. My job here, I'm trying like heck just to please you. That's my goal. That's my journey. That's my life. Let me please God. And it seems to be when I turn the corner and I get there, I realize he walked me to that place all along. But that humanness, that broken part of me, doesn't want to trust. It will never want to trust. There's something in the head called the ego. Pride that never wants to have a relationship with God, never wants to trust God. It's always trying to trick me, don't believe in God. But I put one foot in front of the other and chop wood and carry water. When I finally get to the destination, I say, wow, this worked out pretty good. And all of that journey of the uncertainty and the doubt, my lack of trust, my not wanting to surrender was all more pruning of the tree. My kid brother calls it, God put me back in school for another couple of months so I can remember who's in charge of my life. Conversely, when I'm in a place of surrender, Mary and I just went through something in Korea, huge spectacular upheaval, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt, a lot of what's going to happen. And we got to a place, I think I shared this last week, uh, uh, several weeks ago, uh, it just came to me, I, I said to Mary, just let it evolve, let's just see what happens, that was a surrender. I'm not making a decision. I'm not making a phone call. I'm not even following up with an email. I'm just going to let this evolve. And it did. And I think part of my exhaustion is it's finally done. And now it's a rest of time. I couldn't get off the couch to get here. I got to tell you, I'm sitting on the couch and looking at the clock saying, maybe I could cancel. Uh, it was like that. <laughs> made a decision to turn my will and life over to care of God as I currently understand them. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1988 after seven treatment centers, I'm a Catholic and I, I, I had no problems with the carpenter, even, even in my worst times. I just didn't think he was paying attention to me. But when they talked about this Zara, this God, the one you can't see, there's no movies to go to and watch an old movie. So that's what he looks like. There's no pictures. Like when I go to church, they have a picture of, uh, uh, of the carpenter. There's a crucifix. You got a visual. But this God, there's no visual. A spirit. I said, I don't know about it. It's too out there for me. And I had some contempt. And I had some anger. And I was leaning on hate. I didn't deny his existence. I knew he was there. But I think he could do a lot better job. 
I mean, if he's getting paid by the hour, he could probably do a much better job. But I don't think he's paying attention, not to your life. I couldn't care. To my life. That's how I came in. I'm sorry to hear your problems, but mine are more important. Conversely, coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, I have stuff, but if I pay attention to yours, try to help you, help you with yours, it seems mine just, just dissipate. It, none of this makes sense. And so what I used when I got here was a group of drunks for good orderly direction. You, I can see, I can touch, I, I, I can hear. A group of drunks for good old direction. Now, when I came in, there were always the old timers uh, back in New York. They'd always stay in the back of the room. That seemed to be old. It wasn't inventory row. It was old timers row. None of them sat in the front. And when you walked into a meeting, you would pray. They would say hello to you. And you waited for the, hey, kid, how are you? Suddenly, you felt like a big shot. And if they knew your name and said, hey, Pete, come on over and sit with us tonight, it was un- I'm sitting like at royal, like royal uh, 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 blood now. I got to take my shoes off. I'm on holy ground. It was like that. Now, it's interesting. Some of those men, I remember their names. They don't remember me, I'm sure, and a lot of them have passed on. But I do remember who they were. That's the impact they had on me. If one of them was still alive and walked in the room, probably wouldn't even know who I was, but I would say, there's old man Frank. Because I remember them. And they were my higher power, the group of drunks for good only direction. And our big book talks about my own conception, chapter two Gnostics, my own conception, no matter how inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach. They're not putting a grade on this. In fact, I find my experience is not necessarily true, but my experience, a lot of cats who come in here with 30 days and they found the Lord, they really haven't. It just makes them feel good. It sounds good because everybody else in my row has done that, so I got to do that. It's competing. And then I get into this ego-driven recovery. Ego-driven recovery, which means I need to nail down this book, not for a transformation, but to sound profound. I need to nail down this book, know what all the commas are, all the periods are, what Bill had for lunch in 1947. I need to know all these things. So I can spout it out when I'm asked to share. So I can convince you and convince me that I'm really here, that I know what I'm doing. And then what's worse, I sit back there and someone gets up here to speak and misquotes a step or misquotes the book and I'm sitting there, my arms folded, they have no recovery. (laughs) It's a big book meeting on step one, two, three or whatever and they didn't even cover the step. He gave a great talk. The old time was going, what a great talk. But Joe Big Book is sitting there going, huh, who's their sponsor? That's ego-driven recovery. And I get married. I get married to the book. I get married to the mechanics. There's no room for God in there. There is no God in there. It's me. Keep me believing I'm keeping me sober by gaining a whole lot of information, a whole lot of knowledge. I remember sitting, uh, uh, I was at a meeting one time in, in New Jersey. Really, really good meeting. Monday night, Berkeley Heights. It was This guy, Harold, was like the, the dawn of that meeting. It was just a really cool place to be. And uh, before the meeting started, we were hanging out by the coffee pot. And I observed something. And there were two guys who were sober longer than me. And they were t- one guy was talking about a book, uh, Living Buddha, Living Christ. And the other guy responded, I know the book. And he quoted from it. And then this guy quoted another book, and then he quoted another book, and they were sparring. Who's going to outdo who on the information they've gathered? And the both of them made me nauseous. Because I've learned the hard way 
that I can, I mean, I'm called to speak, that's my job tonight, but I can say more by saying nothing. And I can say a whole lot less by talking too much. Because the spirit doesn't need to show off. The spirit doesn't need to convince anyone they're profound. But when we get asked to talk, we share, or what I'm trying to do tonight, share my experience, strength, and hope. The whole thing for me in Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual walk. Have I truly surrendered to what is? One of the things I, I, I faced, well, it's actually two things. Uh, I'll, I'll be 63 in a week, and I can't believe I'm going to be 63 in a week. I feel like, you know, I'm 18 playing stickball in Brooklyn. For newcomers, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I know a couple of guys back there know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, hanging out on a street corner, drinking beer and listening to, you know, the Rolling Stones and things like that. And clueless and blindness and everything was great. And 63. And sometimes I get into most of the road is behind me. And it scares me a little. And it's compounded when I speak to my dad, who uh, in November will be 85. And I can't believe he's going to be 85, because I remember my dad was a rough and tough character in his day. Uh, one of these guys who commanded respect when he showed up, and he got it. And I saw him in action a few times, and I hear his, I can hear the voice. I can hear the age in his voice. And when I'm around him, you know, I can see ages, ages shown up. And it's heartbreaking because he knows what's happening, and I don't know how many more years in front of him he's got, and that, that scares me. I want to get in there and control. I want to fix it. I want to make him youthful. I want to make all of us youth. I want to do this. If I had magic hands, I would, but I don't. But I reconcile the whole walk because as sure as I'm here tonight speaking to you, I, I, I'm not giving this lip service, I don't know what's on the other side. I just know there's something cool on the other side. Because then this whole thing, not only in AA, this whole walk is for nothing. And I've been praying to air all these years. And the miracles I saw were just coincidence. Impossible. I'm convinced there's something on the other side. And for me, this is training ground to be ready to get there. But those are the type of things that I, I, I sometimes leave claw marks in surrendering. And when I don't surrender, I don't experience that kind of freedom because the burdens on my shoulders are put there by me, not by God. So many of the, the challenges I have aren't just life happening. My life is going to be, ch it challenges us. It's problematic. We live in a world of impermanence. A lot of things come at us. The world we live in right now is upside down. Young folks who are growing up right now have no clue how cool this country is. It's just gotten sideways. So you got that coming at us. But really what I have to pay attention to is the stuff that I make up, the narratives I create in my head. And that thought life creates my current reality, and that's bondage. It's not good. There's no God in that. There's no space for God because I'm perpetual motion. Do this so that happens. Do that so this happens. And there's never a pause in that. But when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1988, I was, I was desperate. Very often, as on June 23rd, 1988, Desperation scream louder than the ego. And it, it wasn't like desperate to make money, desperate to get a woman in my life, desperate to get a good reputation, desperate, I, I, can't, I can't live like this anymore. I don't want to die anymore. 
It's daily dying every day, living a life of quiet desperation, despair, all of it. And then the body's beat up. I, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. That's an awful feeling to have, but a great place to be for folks like us because I can build from there. There's a reaching out that somewhere, I think I talked about this last week, somewhere deep down in my soul, I'm convinced I can't anymore. I can't do it. I can't live in this place. Is it possible? Is it possible? As there's a story in the book that says all these people were right. Is it possible that all those people who would come into treatment centers on a Saturday night, give up their Saturday night to bring a meeting to a bunch of dope fiends and drunks who aren't even paying attention, they talked about God, that they're right? Is it possible some of those meetings I would tend, even drunk, that they were talking about God and this great power and these 12 steps, that they were right? Even as a possibility, a remote chance that they were right, it was big compared to what I had, which was nothing. It was drinking and pilling myself to death at the end and trying to even take my life. It has to be better. It's got to be a little bit better. And that, that is the place of surrender where I knew, not in here, because this is the thing that wants me drunk. This is the thing that is just not, it's a failed system. It doesn't work. The mind does not work. It's broken. Don't rely on it. I don't. But there was something deep down in here that knew we were out of options. There was no, well, maybe I could, and what if I did that, and I can make this phone call. And at that point, when I was in a place deep down in my soul, and I've shared this from a million podiums, I don't know if this literally would have happened, but I felt like if I don't get a drink in me right now, I'm going to die. And if I do get a drink in me right now, I'm going to die. I don't know what to do anymore. And at that point, I get scooped up. It's called being in the place of getting surrendered. The ground is fertile. It's like the whole body goes limp. And that's when God can come in. And at that point, I remember, if he would have sent me to Timbuktu for treatment, I was going. Might have been, a, might have been frightened, might have been, you know, oh my God, where am I going? I don't know what this is going to look like. But I'm going. I, there's no looking back. Well, maybe I could have. And that gets me into trouble and lots of folks into trouble once the wrinkles are out of the belly and we get a little time, we get a little comfortable, we start to know people and things like that. I forget that. And I can't rely on that forever. But it's gone. And suddenly I'm in charge of my life again. And it's really funny. We're, we're at this turning point in, in, in this journey at the third step. It's huge. We can just blow right by the third step, third step decision, third step prayer, move into four. I have no clue what I just did. It is a huge piece that I have to quit playing God. And I have to take a look at And I have to do this every time I go to the work. And how many areas of my life am I still playing God? Inwardly, which is deadly because no one knows it, or outwardly which is just as bad, but people can challenge me on it because they'll hear it. They'll see it. But inwardly, the dialogue that I know what I'm doing and they don't. Because once I think I know everything, I stop learning. God cannot be known, my experience, by intellect. God can only know by the soul, which it's always seeking anyway. This decision they asked me to do is just that. 
Some of us, our book talks about it, have these, these moments. Bill had it in the town's hospital detoxing, for God's sake. You know. uh, Bill Dotson, after three days of being in a detox, he told his wife, get my clothes, we're out of here. He had something like that. That doesn't always happen. It's just a decision. And I may still be kind of walking in the dark, trying to feel my way around, trying not to bump into something, but I'm on my way if I'm willing to quit playing God. It is a huge piece. It almost should be another step before we go to step three. Am I willing to quit playing God? And how many areas in my life am I playing God? My old sponsor and my current sponsor both told me this. Let's take a look. at Before we do anything, where are you playing God? Is I'm not playing God. Already I'm in trouble when I say that. You know, the ego answered that one. And I had to make a list of areas in my life where I want control. That's playing God. It should be this way. God's not working with the script I wrote. I'm playing God over and over and over again. No wonder why sometimes you can feel, well, I can feel tight about certain things, uncertainty and, and doubt of the future because it's not going my way. I know it's not going to go my way. I wake up in the morning. I know what the day's going to look like. I know what you're going to say and how you're going to behave, and I'm already pissed off, and I'm up two minutes. <laughs> Five o'clock by 5.02, I'm Rambo. Until I walk into the AA meeting, say, how are you doing? I say, I'm wonderful. I'm absolutely wonderful. <laughs> Make a decision. It's kind of like that, that uh, you know, I, I, I decide I'm going to get in shape Monday. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, make a decision. Hey, I, I really want to get in shape. It's a good thing. You know, hey, I, you know, a little out of breath and little sluggish, and uh, I'm going to get in shape. Whatever that looks like, I'm going to do it. And, um, but I haven't done anything yet. But it's a decision, a good decision. But what I need to do is lace up and go for a walk, at least. Or maybe go for a run. Or go to a health club and join a gym and, and do something, break a sweat regularly. You know, I'm not going to get in shape if I go to the gym one day, break a sweat, and go back six months later. It's not, it doesn't mean anything. So I need to work out in the AA gym because what I'm working out is not buys or tries. I'm working out on the soul. I'm working out on those muscles. And that's much more important than anything. But it's just a decision. In order to follow that through, I need to be working out regularly. I need to be doing something regularly. I'm going to stop praying more. Okay, great. When was the last time you prayed? Three weeks ago. Okay. Did you pray today? Not yet. That decision means nothing. I prayed today. I prayed tonight. Good. We began. And that's what step three is looking at. I had the pointer out of this mess in step two. And step three is the decision to follow the arrow. Wherever it's going to take me really is none of my business. It's easy for me to get into trouble when I think I know what the spiritual transformation is going to look like, what it's going to sound like, what I'm going to become. I'm going to become a big circuit speaker once I get this down. I'm going to be the the don of my home. No, I don't know what it's going to look like. Because God just may say you're going to sit in the back row in a chair, go unnoticed by most folks. You're going to be working with people. You're going to be carrying the message when you're called upon, but you're not going to be very popular. But I will give you freedom beyond what you can even fathom. I'll take it. But the ego says, no, 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 no. If I do all of this, I want to be a guru. 
So I'm already dictating what the journey is going to look like, and I'm back to playing God again with me. I'm back to playing God again. Am I willing to surrender everything? And it's willing. Say what to do yet, or even I have to do, but am I willing? For example, I really want to get free. I can't take this sobriety, and I'm in bondage all the time. I can't have a good relationship. And it goes on and on, the Rolodex of pain and misery we're in. This person happens to have a really good job making lots of money. And God says, okay, I'll give you that, but you're going to give up this luxurious career and go work in the Salvation Army. Well, I don't know about that. Maybe the pain wasn't that bad. So there can't be, for me, there can't be conditions. I put conditions on stuff. I'm guilty of it. This mind loves to just screw up everything. I put conditions and hit the walls, okay? No conditions. Wherever you, wherever you want me, my, my prayer in the morning is this. God, wherever you want me to go, I will go. Whatever you want me to do, I will do. And whatever you need me to say, I will say, regardless of the, the, whatever comes back at me because of it. It's the cross I'm carrying. What does that decision look like for me? How free do I want to be? In how it works, which is our introduction to three and four, it says, really, excuse me, really have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path? It's a very powerful statement. And a buddy of mine from, from Maryland says, it really reads like this, really have we seen a person thoroughly follow our path? Because they're not talking about memorizing this and go reciting it at an AA meeting. Follow the path, which means I'm on the path and I'm following it, which means a bunch of you guys are in front of me and there's a bunch behind me, but it's a path I'm taking. I'm not diverting from the path. Just keep following the path, which means I'm on. I'm in, I have some traction here. I've, I've, I've watched a lot and saw what happened to me a few times that as soon as I want to get involved in what this path looks like I don't mean be apathetic but as soon as I want to get my hands on well I don't like the road it's kind of going this way and everyone seems to be going that way why is he taking me this way I want to take over I start to compare myself with other people, and I say, they seem to be further down the road. They seem to be further down the road financially. They further, seem to be further down the road with their career. Uh, maybe I should be doing what they're doing. And it pulls me further and further and further away from the path God laid out for me. My experience has been on, on this road um, that sometimes it's going to feel really lonely and I'm the only one on that path. And sometimes I'll see a lot of folks, it's happened to me, folks I came in with didn't want to go to that extreme. They said I was too extreme with this. I'm too rigid with it. I'm too even orthodox with it. I don't know where those guys are today. But I'm here speaking, upright and sober. So lots of times the mind is going to look to compare to other people. And anytime I compare, I lose. You're always better than me. Or I'm much better than you. Either way, I lose. Can I, the biggest, one of the biggest challenges over the years for me has been, can I discern from this to this? And can I stick in here? Can I stay right in here? Again, I'd be happy to report to you. I do that all the time, but I don't. 
you know, maybe one day spiritual being, one day enlightened being. One thing I always have is human being, which means I'm flawed and I'm broken. And I'm going to listen to this sometimes more than the soul. But the soul is always right. And it doesn't have to announce anything. Soulful people, when they walk into a room, you just know it. There's something, there's just something right. They just seem to be awfully still and calm, and they have a sense of humor, and they can get really sick. They're just rolling. They go with the flow. As a woman, Carolyn Mesa says, can you just go with the flow rather than resisting all the time? Yeah? I'm sharing this because I can do, we, a lot of us in this room could do mechanics, but what does step three look like live? When I'm stuck on 95, got to get to a meeting. We thought we were going to be late tonight, and it, no one's moving. Neither one of us got mad. We, we called up Brian. We said, we're going to get under the wire, maybe, and whatever's going to happen, happen here. That's going live. I see a lot of cats know this book and, 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 and just can't get it together. That's dangerous. Yeah. Knowledge in the wrong hands becomes dangerous. Okay, so it says this. Those who do not recover or people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to simple programs. Already conditions on this. I can't have one foot in the water and one foot on the sand. Got to go completely in. When it comes to step three, step three can be a great, a great promise of hope for a guy like me. That if i really willing to quit playing God and turn my will in life, my thinking and my actions over to this power, I might be able to experience what some of those other folks are experiencing. And it can be my greatest nightmare because if I'm not willing to go along with this, I just roll right back into despair and humiliation in the life I've known. See, for me, Alcoholics Anonymous was never a bridge back to life. Who wants that? If you want to even call that a life, it's a whole new life and constantly unfolding without my permission. But it unfolds. I mean, I... A bunch of years ago, I was sponsoring a guy in a town called Bellingham, Washington. I didn't even know, I never heard of it before. And he asked me to come out and speak at his group anniversary. I don't know Bellingham, Seattle. I mean, that's, that's far from Jersey. To a group anniversary, and they didn't really have enough money to fly me out there. And they were trying to get, like, everyone's flying points together to buy one. T- and this is saying, you don't really need to do this. Don't, just... Just pass on it. You have a full calendar anyway. How many more talks do you need to do? And something in here said, just go with it. Just go. And that's where I met my wife. I didn't see that one coming. I think she did. I'm not sure. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Interesting uh, choice of words here. When I came in, when I read that, it talked about grave emotional mental disorder. I immediately assumed, or my ego assumed for me, how wonderful and kind and loving is this book. They're talking about people who suffer from grave emotional mental disorders, who have to be on psych meds and and be with a, a, a shrink once a week. But we include them. Isn't that a wonderful? thing. And I'll clean up the language, but my sponsor went up one side down the other. He said, they're talking about you. <laughs> I said, I don't have grave fear. He said, you and alcohol? He said, yes, you have a grave emotional mental disorder. How many treatment centers? How many times did you go back to that which is killing you? 
You always picked up the first drink, never drunk. You were always sober. You have a, I said, I think you're right. And how many times in sobriety do we think about doing stuff that we know is going to land us in jail? But it's entertaining. Right? Yeah, I know. Um, the capacity, to be honest, is unbelievable. It's so simple. I don't know how many ounces this is. Um, I don't know. Let's say it's 12 ounces, can of soda. Yeah? Um, it has the capacity to be filled. It's filled right now. It's almost full. But if I left it here till next week, I won't want to drink it. It's flat. It won't taste good. It, maybe some critters crawl. I don't know what's in there. You know? It's not good. It might even get me ill. And if I left it there for a year, I certainly don't want to drink it. But the container itself is fine. It's just a little bit older. It has the capacity to be filled. But in order for me to fill it with a fresh soft drink, what I need to do is empty out the contents, clean it out, get all the toxic stuff out of there. And then I can go to the fountain and just pour coffee and whatever I want and, and drink away. I'm fine. The process of recovery is like that. God has given me a soul that has the capacity to be filled with God. And what I've done in my effort to live life on self-will, I've tainted it. I've, I've made it toxic. I've poisoned it, if you will. Now, I can never really touch the soul like that, but I've been filled up with that stuff, and that drives me. And so this process of recovery is not necessarily linear, but transformational. It's not addition, it's removal. The less of me, the more God, the more God, less of me. Everything's got to go. But in order for me to do that, I got to take my hands off the wheel. I'm not playing God, even if it hurts, even if I'm uncomfortable, even when the sponsor says, you're not doing this, you're really doing that. I need to be open and take that direction. I cannot run the show. Yeah, with me? The process of recovery is subtraction, never addition. More knowledge might just get me drunk. More programming, give me something to do. Give me an assignment to do. Let me do a beautiful third column and highlighters. I use a slide rule. It'll be great while I'm sipping on a beer. God's not interested in that. God has given me or us this information. It doesn't have to be perfect. We should respect it and honor it and do it the right way. It doesn't care if, it don't, if we don't. I don't know how to spell. I'm not a good speller. My penmanship is brutal. God didn't say, well, I don't know about you. <laughs> My sponsor did that a few times. I don't know about you. This information gets me to him who's been keeping me sober all along while I'm trying to get to him. I mean, I woke up to that one day. Who's really writing this fortune? Who's keeping me sober while I'm writing a fortune? Certainly not me, but the ego says, look at the great job we're keeping us sober. I'm going to hit utopia by the ninth step. Look out. Failing to realize I have nothing to do with this. Now, the ego doesn't want to even touch that one. That I have nothing to do with my recovery. There's some meetings, the, the cell bring it up there, and they say, tell us how you did it. What? Throw the book out the window. We don't need God. I'm going to tell you how I did this. I'm just a heck of a person, and I do all these great things, and that has kept me sober. What I'm really saying is, look how good of a job I'm doing keeping me sober. How'd I do it? I screwed up my life, and I begged for help, and you kept me sober. That's how it's happened. Because you put my hand in God's hand. 
That's just a fact. For me, not better than anyone, certainly not less than anyone. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, living life on self-will. What happened, the transformation, what we're like now, living in the world of the spirit. Yeah, that's what that's about. So it talks about step three here. Uh, but before we get to actually step three on page 62, there's some, there's some considerations they give us. Number one, it says, I'm alcoholic, cannot manage my own life. Am I convinced of that? Drunk or sober, I'm still alcoholic, yeah? Then it says uh, that probably no human power can relieve my alcoholism. That means him, her, the kids, the money, the job, the promotion, the good body, the nice clothes, the Rolex. None of the, I'll, I'll sell all of that stuff to get a drink. And that God could and would if he was sought in my seeking. What, is it, what does it look, what, what today look like? You know, I always do that sometimes at the end of the day. How did I do today? How many times did I check in with God, commune with God, rely upon God, talk to God, get angry with God, just do something with God compared to I woke up this morning, checked in, and the rest of the day was all me. Because what the ego does is kick in and say, hey, listen, man, you got like a few years now. I mean, you can put the car in neutral and coast for a while. You, I feel good. I'm feeling pretty good. And I start to be a worshiper of my emotions. I start to be a worshiper of feelings. I start to be a seeker of comfort. And I think I've said this on the first week. Comfort, for me, turns into a four-letter word because I'm seeking comfort based on what I think I need to be comfortable. It could be the very thing that's going to get me a double vodka going. Spiritual joy is something different. Conscious contact with God. There's a requirement before I move forward that I need to be convinced without any doubt. That's a first step consideration that my life on itself can hardly be a success. Go back to step one and share my story with my sponsor again. Read what I wrote, perhaps, or just sit and reflect on what I do when I run the show. Seven treatment centers, I live in an abandoned building. That's what happens to me. I don't bathe, I don't eat, I steal, I lie, I rob, and I hate my family. That's what I turn into. Okay, pretty good. My life on self-will has never been a success. How do I get away, how do I get distance from that? On page 62, it talks about selfishness and self-centeredness. And to me, this is the illness drunk or sober, that I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear. Now, I don't know if it's literally a hundred. I don't have that information. Maybe Bill's just using it like, you know, just to make a point. A hundred forms of fear. I'm driven by it. It means I'm locked in the You know when you get arrested, the handcuffs go behind the back, they put you in the car, and once you get booked on property of whatever county I'm in, and they take me, I got to go through the system. They take me wherever they want me to go. Yeah? Same thing with fear. It takes me. It drives me. And then I wake up to find out that this fear is this false evidence appearing real. It's the little kid who's crying at night and calls his mama into the room, and there's a boogeyman in the corner. She turns on the light. It's a little teddy bear that she bought for him or, or a chair. But when he closes the light, he sees that. It's not there. 
And I make decisions. I have made decisions based on false evidence appearing real, which means the decision is wrong or you're wrong. I don't speak to you about something. I, I get away from you based on the narrative my mind told me, which is always a lie. False evidence appearing real. I must take a peek around the corner because I know there's a guy going to hit me in the head with a club as soon as I get there. And I turn around, there's no one there. But I avoided turning for years. False evidence appearing real. And I'm driven by that stuff. My selfishness, my self-centeredness, anyone does a fourth step, you will touch that immediately if you haven't touched it yet. And the old joke is this. If I don't know what my selfishness and self-centeredness look like, if I don't know what my defects and shortcomings look like, sit down with the family and say, I'm having a problem identifying this. Can you help me? And the wife will definitely tell you, so will the husband, so will the kids. They will point out incident after incident where that showed up. But if I'm willing to quit playing God, he'll reveal it to me because he wants me to get free more than I want to get free. He needs another worker to go help his kids, to get the lost sheep out there and bring them here. As a buddy of mine says, to let the guy out there who doesn't know we're in here, that we're in here. So selfishness and self-centered is the root of my troubles. Um, I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. And what do I do in this place? I hurt people. Then they retaliate. And I say, what did I do? You know, I'm gossiping about Joe for weeks, and Joe gets wind of it. And then Joe stops talking to me. I say, what's his problem? Until I do an inventory, I realize why Joe has walked away from me. Lots of times you'll hear in an inventory, she left me, or he left me. Until we get to the fourth column, we find out, no, we drove them away. Who would want to be with someone like us? We drove them away. Based on my selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, my full evidence, appearing real decision-making. We drive people away. Yeah. This is, this is the, 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 the wedge, if you will, between me and God. This, this thing, this cinder block. What's worse is, I start to become numb to it. I don't even know what's going on. You do. I don't even know what's going on, but I'm still experiencing the effects of it. Why is this never working out? Why am I always riddled with fear and anxiety? I don't even know this fear driving me. Selfish and self-centeredness is driving me. I don't even know it anymore. It's like a callus on your hand that you get used to, and you don't even know until someone shakes your hand and says, hey, you got a callus on your hand. Oh, yeah, I forgot all about it. That's even, I think that's even more deadly, that I'm operating like this. I'm operating out of woundedness, and there's no God in my life. I give good lip service to it, which is cheap. It's not, not hard to do. Anyone can give lip service to God. It's a big shift when I start to be a walking prayer. And my actions look godly. Not perfect, but look godly. I'll make an attempt to go that way. And so on the bottom of page 62 is our third step consideration. This really is like the third step. The third step prayer is an affirmation of willing to live along these lines. And it's interesting in the third step prayer, at the end it says the wording was, of course, quite optional. Like any, when I pray, it's the intent at which I pray that's really important rather than just a check-in. So it says this. This is the how and why, but first I had to quit playing God. Why? It didn't work. 
Next, we decided hereafter in his drama of life, God's going to be my director. He's the boss. He's going to tell me what to do. Like a director on a movie set. Need more lights, less lights. I need you to be this. I need you to do that. He's the principal. We're his agents. Agents represent the principal. So in a word here, that's saying we represent God. That's going to be my job, our job. Agents represent the principal, but the principal's still the boss. He's the father. We're his children. Uh, most parents, moms and dads, I'll say most because I know not everyone's perfect out there, but most parents will give their children uh, uh, everything they need, not necessarily what they want, and will love them unconditionally even when they get upset with them and will th- lay down their life for their children. My carpenter did 2,000 years ago. But that's what most parents do. He's the father with his children. I can't be bigger than a child in the eyes of God. No matter how worldly I am, how wealthy I am, in God's eyes, I'm still his child. And that's a cool place to be. Not immature. It doesn't mean like I act like a child, but childlike. The awe and wonder of God's kingdom, if you will, everything he's done. I mean, walk into a room and look around the room, and drunks and dophines are in one room, and we're all sober. Oh, my God. Now, God forbid if we would to use, this would get messy in here really quick, right? (laughs) Most good ideas are simple, and this concept or idea was the keystone to which I'm about to pass the freedom, lays right in the middle. It says this, when we sincerely took this position, he's the father, I'm the child, etc., all sorts of remarkable things have followed. I had a new boss. Being all-powerful, he's going to provide me what I need if I keep close and perform his work well. There's no proximity for me between me and God. I need to get close to be close. Yeah, What I wake up to is the nearness of my creator. Our book talks about that. In step five, I wake up to, oh, my God, he's all over. How God's circumference is everywhere. His, his center is everywhere, and his circumference is nowhere. I can't get away from God. I just wake up to, oh, my God, it's God. He's been here all along. Performers work well. A servant's heart. Go to a meeting early, stay a few minutes late, help out. Pick up a chair. See a white chip or rock and roll and spend some time. I can get to the diner late. Buy him a pack of cigarettes. Have a drunk talk with him. Help. The homeless people do throw him a couple of bucks. It's service. And I'm out of my own way in my stupid thinking. Established on this footing, I became less and less interested in me and my plans and designs and more about how I can contribute to life. It's the exact opposite of page 62. It's already been a shift here. And we start to taste that little by slowly. As I felt new power flow in, well, thank the good Lord because I'm out. Lack of power is my dilemma. The tank is empty, but here comes some new power. Subtraction or addition. Everything's been removed. Now I can fill up with God's power. I could face life successfully. I became conscious. I'm awake to God's presence, and I lose my fear of today, tomorrow, hereafter. It talks about having peace of mind because I'm operating little by slowly out of the soul. I'm getting distance between me and this predator called the mind. And what I did, I'm already late. I can't believe it's 816. I got down on my knees with my sponsor and did a third step prayer together. We held hands and he, we said it together. And I got up off my knees and we immediately started on next. We launched out of the course of vigorous action to follow through with this decision. I apologize for running late. That's all I got. Peace.
Okay, let's thank Peter M. again for his powerful message. Okay, and now it's time for the Secretary's report. Hello, everyone. I am uh, your recovered alcoholic secretary. My name is Joey. Um, in keeping with the seven tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are not going around. While that's going on, I've asked uh, a great man um, to come up and read the recovery statements. William, please come up. Um, as he's coming up, you read this to explain why many people in this group may identify as recovered rather than recovery and what exactly needs to be a recovered alcoholic. No one's better to explain that than William. Thank you. Good evening. My name is William. I am a drink alcoholic. Recovered. <clears throat> we are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for a lifetime, but we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. All right. <clears throat> All right. So, 1940-style big book sponsorship. From the forward to the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sobered once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75-plus percent success rate. All right. Um, at this time, is there anyone out there that uh, needs a sponsor? No? Oh, yes, please. If you don't mind standing. What's your name? I'm Jessica. Jessica, awesome. Thank you, Jessica. Anyone else? That's okay. So um, at this time, any recovered alcoholics out there? Ayo. Um, so please, women or whatever, please get with Jessica. Thank you. Um, Whatever the Lord has you doing here. Um, all right. So at this time, we got some announcements. What? Oh, we're winging a baby. Let's do it. Uh, intergroup. We've all heard of that. Uh, you can go by AA literature, get medallions. It's responsible for creating the where and when. Um, scheduling a hotline. Stop by. I believe they're downtown. Say hello to them. BCIC, responsible for bringing meetings in places where people like us can't get out, such as jails, detoxes, rehabs. They meet monthly um, at the 12-step house. I believe Peter's here. 
He left. Okay. Is there any BCIC people here? That's okay. You know, pop over to 12-step house. Just be like, I want to get involved. Um, all right. Um, we do have um, some flyers from some, for some miscellaneous um, announcements and events happening as well. So please stop by the, the table over there um, to grab some there. We also do have a Monday night big book study workshop. Um, tremendous meeting, third floor of this building actually. Monday, 6.30, stop by for fellowship. Cookies supplied by Alan. And um, it's a, where the big book comes alive. That's pretty cool. Um, so we'd love to see you there. All right. Sorry about this. So we, where the flyers are, we do have CDs, mugs, large for me, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. If you want to procure some, see one of the home group members. Um, we meet every Thursday, and very grateful to have Peter here. Uh, promptly start in 715, come early for fellowship, and we ask to be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Thank you. Thank you, Joey. Uh, before I forget, uh, this room, we're going to need to use it for a service on Sunday. So if you don't, if you want to do some service, um, please help us stack the chairs. Okay. Uh, so again, thank you, Joey, and thank you, Peter. Um, we have tonight's session and all the past speakers' podcasts at alcoholicsandgod.org. Invite everyone to our Monday Big Book Study. We have some great hosts over there. Um, invite those whom wish to, sorry, that, that was my direction to tell you. Um, if you would like to thank Peter again for his powerful message, please line up down the center aisle um, and he'll greet you accordingly. So let's uh, end with the Lord's Prayer. All right, who woke us up this morning? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
tradition. These possessions that I have amount to nothing at all.
shining through But when you cry Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. 
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go.
the light Count my blessings when I go to sleep at night And I dream now Yeah, I dream now And everything's alright <laughs> Oh, man Going on 10 years old, that song is God bless I love you, Mike Chase Bye
Sim.